to start out with a little game this morning is we're going to show some pictures on the screen, and I want you to tell me what is wrong with this picture. Let's start with the first one. What's wrong with it? He's upside down, didn't he? You know, actually, that, that wasn't Photoshopped. You know, he actually was flying like that, and a guy got a picture of him doing that, which to me is like, even in the foul world, I guess, they just go, hey, guys, look at this. You know, can you do this? How about this one? Yeah, I think this was over in Europe somewhere where they have this upside-down house. It's upside-down. Okay, how about this one? took me a minute on that one. How in the world is he driving that thing? But I guess this car, this guy specializes in upside down cars, which why you would want to do that, I don't know. But uh, that's what, how about this one? This one's a little harder. It's an upside down iceberg. Apparently, when an iceberg, when it breaks away from the mainland, depending upon the weight differential, it can flip. And, and so this one, as you see, has flipped. So what, what is normally under the water, you're seeing above it, which is why it's so crystallized, which I thought was kind of cool. So it's upside down. Anybody know what this is or, ha- or eat this before? What is that? Pineapple upside down cake. Anybody have the joy of feasting on that before? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it is good. Well, you know what's interesting? This whole idea of upside down when we go into 1 Corinthians, what we're finding is the gospel is very upside down than the way that you would expect it. It's upside down to the way that our world would function in the way, which is why so many have stumbled over it over the years. Because from the very beginning, when Jesus was born, he was from Nazareth. And people are like, who comes out of Nazareth? This is a little town where nothing comes out of. It's upside down. When it comes to the fact that he was poor. Jesus was born in a poor family, and you, and you think about that, and you're looking at it going, you know, the king, if you're going to be a king, you should come from the establishment, you know, this should be from the, the upper crust of society, and so again, it was just upside down, and, and then when Jesus began to teach, he began to say things that were very upside down. For instance, when he said, the greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I mean, that's, that's upside down from our culture. It's usually the proud that are exalted. It's those who get ahead. Or, or he says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. And you're like, that's upside down. What's up with that? And then, he, and then he tells this parable. And this one, I remember the first time I read this, it just really threw me. Because it really was upside down to me. Jesus is telling the parable in Matthew 20 about a, a vineyard owner. And he hires people to go out and to work in the vineyard. And he, and he hires some early in the day. And he says, hey, I'll pay you a denarius for a day's worth of work. And they're like, that's a good, you know, that's a good pay. Yeah, I'll take that. So they go to work. Well, then he hires some people at the third hour, the sixth hour. And he hires some more at the 11th hour. And he all hired them and they came to work. And then when it came time to pay them, he said, well, let the last ones that we hired first come through. We'll pay them first. And so when the people who were hired at the 11th hour came, he paid them a denarius. And you're like, okay, man, that's great. You know, for an hour's worth of work, they got a denarius. And then as he started to go down the row, they were all getting the same pay. And you can just imagine if you're the person who came to work first and you've worked a whole day 
And you're going, if that person got a denarius, I mean, I know that's what we agreed to do, but if they got a denarius, and now we're, we've worked a whole day, then if it was me, I'd be calculating in my mind, going, okay, 11 times whatever that is, because I've worked 11 more hours than they did, and so when he gets there, what does he give him? He goes, he gives him a denarius. Which you can just imagine, they began to grumble. And, and Jesus, with a vineyard owner, turns to them and just says, am I unfair? Did you not agree to work for a denarius? And then he asks him, he says, am I not able to do with what I want with that which I own? And then he says the line, so the last will be the first, and the first will be the last. It's upside down. And then when, he, when that message in the church began to spread, and you read about it in Acts, those who were spreading the message, when the people brought a report about them, notice how they describe it. It says, men who have turned the world upside down. It was upside down. And the struggle in Corinth was the same, as the church struggled with the upside-down nature of the gospel, and they were trying to mesh it with the things of the world and going, okay, there's some new ideas. We'll mesh it with that, and as we do that, we'll come to something even better, and it'll kind of be nuanced. And it wasn't working because they were opposed to one another. And one of the ways that it was revealing itself was that there was divisions and factions in the church that were arising now, the divisions and the factions were just the symptoms, and so Paul will address those as we get a little bit further in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. But right now, what Paul does, before he launches into that, he says, I first want to get to the root cause. It's kind of like when you, you say, man, I'm always erupting in anger. You know, and you go, well, send them to anger management school or read this Bible verse. And you're like, well, okay, you're treating symptoms here. But there's something underneath. you got to go underneath. you got to get to the layer. And you got to go, okay, so why am I getting to that point? And so this is the question that Paul is going to. He says, we could address the symptoms. But first, I want to go deeper. I want to go to the deeper level. And I want to find out and, and really solidify in your life, why is it that you would even want to go there? And so this will be the root cause. And so to do that, we need to get familiar with the passage that we're going to do this morning. So we're going to, I'll have it on the screen. If not, you can look it in your Bible. We're going to go 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. And here's what it says. For the, root, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, as we unpack this this morning, here's where I want to go. I want to first just talk about the fact that we have the word of the cross. That, that it kept coming back to me as I was studying this, the, the word of the cross, the word of the cross. What is this? Then I want to talk about foolish building uh, as opposed to wise building because it contrasts them both as we go through. And this is something that we'll all wrestle with as we go through our lives. So let's first just talk about the word of the cross. Paul is connecting this, he says, to the, what Ben spoke about last week and the fact that the visions and the factions that were amongst them were all because of the fact that they were navigating away from the cross. The cross was no longer central. I mean, Athens and, and Corinth, they were both hotbeds for kind of fret new intellectual thinking and new ideas. It would be a lot like, you know, when you... Like, say, for instance, if you go out to California, where you find a lot, well, in any place, really. Growing up in Montana, you know, it's a pretty conservative state, but the two places where you see the most liberal thought and the most, you know, thoughts are, are where the universities are. In Bozeman, where Montana State is, University of Montana, where Missoula is, I think it's the same thing. In Arkansas, you know, you can be a pretty conservative state, but you go up to Fayetteville or you go where the universities are, and what that does is there's all kinds of a more liberal thought that goes around and all kinds of new thinking, and it can go further and further away from the gospel. Which is interesting because in Athens and Greek, that's exactly what was going on. In fact, Acts 17.21 describes it this way. He says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I mean, their whole world was getting new ideas, new things coming on. Not that getting ideas and that isn't good, but all these things that were coming up and going were things to replace the gospel. Much like is done in our culture, we, we, we see a shifting culture of things that are going on, and we see a new, where, where, where we place our identity. Where do you get your identity in as, as a person? And today they're saying, well, you get your identity from your sexuality, or we'll redefine marriage. Hey, the original definition wasn't good. There's something new. There's something broader. There's something more that we can grab onto. Or marriage. Hey, let's redefine marriage. Let's, let's redefine it and make it to what we're more nuanced now. And, and C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, Lewis, say that three times real fast. C.S. Lewis, he calls it chronological snobbery. He says it's, it's because we've come later in time, somehow we think we are more intellectual and we know more about human nature than back in biblical times. And we may know more, but human nature has not changed. And what Paul is saying is, look, what you're doing is you're treating the cross, Christ crucified, as if it's no longer relevant. As if it no longer has anything to say. He says, but we, we need to think up something new. He says, but the cross should never get old. It should never lose its centrality in faith and in the church. And God has raised up people at different times to, to speak this to the church. Back in the early 90s, there's a, there's a guy, he's still alive, D.A. Carson, who is um, not only a theologian, but he's also co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Notice what he says. He says, the cross, without ever being disowned, 
is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy. And what's it being replaced by, he says? By peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. He said we're moving away from the centrality of the cross and all that it does to change our lives and how it influences our lives. And we're getting these new ideas, thinking that we're advancing, but we're moving further away from the very nature of the gospel. Go back further, 1864, when a Scottish pastor, Horatius Bonar, who was best known for a hymn that he wrote called I, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, but he also wrote a book called God's Way of Holiness. Now, the words are a little bit antiquated, so let me, let me unpack this a little bit, but I think it's worth reading. He says, The secret of a believer's holy walk is his continual reoccurrence to the blood of the surety. Now, what is that? Well, that's the cross. He says that the person's continually going back to the blood of the cross and his daily communion with a crucified and risen Lord. All divine life, all precious fruits of it spring from the cross. If we would be holy, we must get to the cross and dwell there. And as we've said over and over again, we don't go beyond the cross. We don't wear the gospel. We go deeper in the gospel. And the more that we understand the gospel, the more it has bearings on our life. And it's folly to those who are perishing, but it's wisdom to those who are being saved. And this word folly actually means absurd or nonsense. So to the Gentile world, to the people who are thinking up all these new thoughts, this is utter nonsense. Which kind of reminds me of when Paul, in his later days, when he was on trial, and he was before uh, King Agrippa and Governor Festus. Uh, as he was before them, Festus finally got so irritated with Paul. It says he shouted to him, and he said, Paul, you were out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. What is he telling Paul? He's saying, Paul, you're a fool. How in the world could you believe this? And Paul, in, in, to the Corinthian church, he quotes from Isaiah. And Isaiah, now it's interesting here, because before I give you the quote, what's going on is that Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, who is being besieged by the, by the Assyrians. And as they're coming in, they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and they're talking to their wise men around, and they're asking them, what do you guys think? What do you guys think? And they, they were all saying, make an alliance with Egypt. If you make an alliance with Egypt, you'll be able to fight off the Assyrians, and you'll be okay. And so they made an alliance with Egypt, which is what all the wise men were saying. Instead of making an alliance with God and getting right with God, they said, no, we get an alliance with Egypt. And as a result, he said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul says in the same way, he turns to the church of Corinth and he says, where are your wise men? Where are your scholars? Who are you listening to? What are they telling you? Romans 1 tells us that in, in thinking they were wise, the people became fools. They were following the wisdom of men. They were trying to redefine and go, we got to have something new. We got to turn it. We got to change it. The simplicity of the gospel will, will turn the world upside down. It's not rocket science, it's pretty simple. 
But Paul says we must never stop going to the cross, living under it, and preaching it. Because it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The reason why was because it wasn't being done the way that they thought it should be done. It was folly to the Gentile worlds because it wasn't incorporating all the new ideas and the new things and the new ways that we should do things. It wasn't the latest and greatest. Yet to those who were being saved by its message, it is both Jew and Greek, it was the power of God. So the message of the cross really is a dagger to self-centeredness. The message of the cross just is a dagger to self-centeredness because the least is the greatest, the last is the first, those who are humble or exalted. That's upside down. You know, as I was meditating on this and thinking about this week, I thought, you know, what this is shouting to me is that we can't come to the cross and go, oh, well, okay, just let it go. You know, I'll just go on and live my life. It doesn't give you that option. The cross is, is you either go one side or the other. The other thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that, you know, we don't have to try to sugarcoat the cross. God is calling people to himself, and we go in gentleness and reverence, and we tell other people about it, but, you know, the, th- the thing is, is to some, it's going to be foolishness. To others, it's going to be the power of God to save them. The cross may be old, but its power remains new generation after generation after generation. For both the Paul in, in, in their day and for us, we must not push the centrality of the cross out of the church and try to form a morality and all the things that we want to do to try to make this more palatable message that that everybody will love and and, and that'll be the thing that'll save us in the day. No, he says the same is true for us today. Christ was crucified and it must remain central. That's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, this, this is the very central nature of it. This is, this is the underbelly of why there was so much division. Because they were going after peripheral things and they're making other things more important than the centrality of the cross. But it was the centrality of the cross that would actually make the divisions go away because the main thing, as Ben talked about last week, will stay the main thing. The centrality of the cross. Do you find it in your own life? That we're trying to kind of move away from it. Has the cross become antiquated in your own life? Are you living under the authority of it? Are you allowing it to shape you? See, when you understand the cross, it shapes the way you think. It shapes the way you live. It shapes the way you treat others. It shapes the way you view human nature. The centrality of the cross will change everything. So if we, want to, if we don't want to be foolish builders then we need to keep it central. But let's talk about that for a moment because Paul spends some time here. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Look, not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful or not many of you were of noble birth. He goes, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised to chase to the world, even the things that are not. And so what Paul is doing, he's contrasting really three things here. The wise and the fool, the strong and the weak, 
and the influential and the lowly. And he's saying, look, if you adopt the gospel, if you take a gospel-centered message, it puts you on the wrong side of all three of those. The gospel's not seen as wise or strong or influential. And so when you adopt the gospel into your life, this is, Paul says, it's going to put you on the wrong side of that message. Just look out for you, Paul says. Look at you. Not many of you were noble and wise. God went for the people who were not in order that he may make them are. He brought the gospel out of the things that you wouldn't think. And because what? We're not the hero of the story. He is. He's the hero of the story. I've been reading an autobiography uh, about Mike Prince. My words are just Vice President Mike Pence. It's his autobiography. And it's an interesting one. It's called So Help Me God. And it's, it's just a, it's an amazing read. Uh, in a lot of things, he was, a con- he was a congressman for a while, and then he was the, um, the governor of Indiana, and then obviously became the vice president of the United States, and a godly man who's come to Christ. Uh, he is a Christ follower, uh, and, and very, um, his faith is very vibrant in, in his own life. You know, as I was reading it, I go, oh, wow, if he could ever run, that would be incredible. You know, but I don't know if he ever will. He might be too nice of a guy. Uh, I don't know. But he just, I, I'm just gravitating toward him the more I'm reading about this, and particularly his thoughts on immigration. He was just like, he tried to pass some immigration reform when he was in Congress. He goes, it's a broken system, and we have got to do something to help this. And but both sides of the aisle rejected it because it wasn't politically expedient. And he says it was one of the, the, the things he grieved most in Congress. But, but I digress. The whole thing about it is the fact that his life, I mean, he, there's a book about him. And there's, there's portraits of him. And in the annuals of the United States history, you will always see portraits and things like that. For most of us, that's not us. That's not going to happen in our life, which reminds me of, of an article I read by Paul Tripp. Now, Paul Tripp, most notably now, is known for his devotion that he's written called Good Morning or New Morning Mercies. And so that's what most people know him about. But he wrote on this. He's, he's an excellent author. He says, the honest reality is that most of our stories won't end up in history books. After we die, most of our personal history will die with us. Forgotten except for perhaps a few pictures or memories cherished by our closest loved ones. The chances of your life accomplishments being preserved in a biography are slim to none. I'm like, okay, encourage me some more. And he says, he says, is this discouraging? It shouldn't be. He goes on, rather, if you're God's child, you have been invited into a much bigger story. The grand redemptive story, which is now your biography. Better than anything impressive that you could accomplish in this life, your story is a biography of wisdom and grace written by another. Every twist of the plot is for the best. Every turn he writes into your story is right. Every new character or unexpected event is a tool of his grace. Each new chapter advances his purpose. You have been welcomed into the best story ever by grace and grace alone. Best of all, this story is... This story, that is your biography, has an end 
that never ends. And what I think he's asking here is Paul is basically saying is which story are you investing in? Are you trying to make your name great in this earth? Or are you trying to make his name great? It's the tale of two kingdoms. An earthly story that's all about me trying to write my own biography, trying to make sure that I advance my name, that, that it's all about now, or am I trying to make his name great and understand that I'm, 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 un, I'm living out his story and his work in my life because that story's never going to end. Which one are you investing in? As Paul comes to it, he says the grand story he describes in verse 30. He says, look, this is what it is. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, meaning he revealed his plan of salvation. He became righteousness, which means he made us acceptable to God. Sanctification, meaning he makes us holy and setting us apart for him. And redemption, meaning that he's providing the ransom for a penalty of sin. You know, look, I, I don't know about you. But I want to live for that story. I don't want to waste my time on the peripherals of this story and trying to do something here to try to make my name great here. I want to, I want to live in that story, the story that will never end. That's my biography. If my biography is all that it gets is it welcome in to eternity with the Lord and Savior, I'm good with that. For eternity. That's the upside-down nature. Which kingdom? Which kingdom do we want to invest in? Which one are we, uh, has our heart? Because they're war against one another. And, when, you, and when, it's, when it's all about now, that's where you get divisions and factions going on. It's because people are arguing about who's the greatest. And this is what the disciples were, were worrying about. You know, who's going to be the greatest among you? Where do you who's going to sit at your right? Who's going to sit at your left? And Jesus is like, guys, it's the wrong story. You want it all now. Which brings us to wise boasting, because Paul at the very end here says, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul then goes, he again, he goes back to the Old Testament, and he, and he looks at Jeremiah 9, which is that wonderful passage that says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and he knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. The word know there is to intimately, to know intimate. To have intimate knowledge of him. It says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. That he knows me intimately. Look, if we understand that every good and perfect gift comes from him, if we understand that freedom we have is because of his death on the cross for us, if we understand that in him we live and move and have our being, then why would we want to waste our time on temporary, ill-gotten, worldly status? Why? He's the hero of the story. And we get the privilege of being in on it. Let's take it home. Worship team, you can come on up. 
So the question this morning is, which story are you writing? Which one is consuming your heart? And I know when you're younger, man, everything about it just is all about, you know, what can I do and how can I advance? And, And this doesn't mean you don't, you know move forward in life and achieve and, and that kind of we're not saying that at all we're just saying that even in that it's just a tool to allow you to be used by God in whatever venue it is whose name are you seeking to make great it would be they'd be your biography that someone would go whoa look at them you know that's great i think what this really shouts to us too is do you know him Do you know him? Not just know about him, just not know of him. Do you know him personally? Do you know him intimately? Because one thing that this is not, this is not about us just trying to be good moral people and kind of rearrange and make sure that if we do this, God will bless us in this. This is about us coming before him and going, God, you're everything and I am not and I need you. Have you answered his call in your life? Or are you still dancing around it? And no doubt, if you answer his call, you will be humbled. Because it's his name that is to be exalted. That's the only question that you can answer. But it's one that you don't want to leave, even this morning. Do I know him? And do, am I growing in him intimately? That is the bottom line. Let's stand. Let's sing the last song together. Look, if you have any questions at all as far as whether you truly know him, we would love to talk with you and discuss that further with you. You can come forward. We'll be up here with some of our elders. We invite you to the Lord's table to come this morning and and to commune uh, with him. You know what to do. Go love first. We love because he first loved us. Have a great week.